I'll tell you what, though, singing songs like that, if you're in Christ and you're singing about your King who is forever and eternal and what He's done for you, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the promises that He's made, promises that only He can keep, that's a great way to start studying His Word. That's worship. That's worship. And I pray that that is true for you. I pray that it's true for you, and we think about this section that we're about to approach, and this is going to be a two-week affair, covering these last few sections, and then I will finish, I promise, chapter 12 in three weeks. But as we think of this particular section, a song like that one, and I, I did know what song we would be singing, and by the way, I know what song we're going to be singing next, they are perfect, because... Because imagine being in the presence of the Almighty God in human flesh. Imagine watching and seeing Jesus Christ performing miracles and speaking as no other man ever had. Being in the presence of the Almighty and not, not understanding. And not seeing it. And staying in your rebellion. And your heart still being hardened. Can you imagine being in that situation? Well, uh, believer, you were. You were in that situation. And by the grace of God, He saved you if you're in Christ. And that changed everything for you. And what happened was, the Lord was gracious enough and merciful enough to show you. To show you your own heart, your own situations. And He gave you warning signs about your own life. Warning signs we heard about in our number one. That Solomon saw, and Solomon experienced and lived and wrote down for us via the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to warn us. And as Pastor said rightly, learning from experience is not the best way to learn. Learning from the Word of God is the best way to learn. And so as we think about that and we consider this, I'd like to set the stage for what we'll discuss today. As you can see, my title today is The Clock is Ticking. Time is Running Out. There's an event that may have been etched in your memory if you're in the high 40s or above. And you don't have to look around to see who is in that category. From the, night, the, the year of 1980. Now there's a lot of things that happened there that are etched in my memory. The miracle on ice that happened when the United States hockey team defeated the Russians. That was pretty cool. Reagan defeating uh, the incumbent, the the, uh, the president that some of us, Jimmy Carter, some of us think was maybe not the greatest president in the world. That was a pretty cool thing. I think around here maybe something happened in 1980. Was there a new pastor at this church in 1980? That might be etched in your memory banks, and he is sitting in aisle number four. But uh, that is not the one I'm going to talk about. There's another one. In, as a matter of fact, this event, even as a young man, it was etched in my memory this happened on May 18th in 1980, and I'm going to just give you some statistics about this. This particular event killed 57 people and destroyed 250 homes, caused billions of dollars worth of damage, and it was the most destructive volcanic event in American history, and it was the eruption of Mount St. Helens, and some of you might remember that. Now, what's interesting about that particular event, and some of you know of it from your history books, was that there were warning signs that the experts saw that there was something coming. And as a matter of fact, it had been coming for a while from this article. Let me just read a few of these things from you. This, this particular mountain, this particular volcano, Mount St. Helens, had been visibly active as, late, as early by the, of, of tracking as 1857 when the lava came down on the Goat Rocks and created the north side. This was visible in the mid-1800s. By the 1950s, the area's geology came to be better understood, and the scientists realized that something was likely brewing beneath the surface. Studies published in 1975 and 78 strongly suggested that the volcano might be erupting within the next decade and before the end of the century. Beginning around March 16th of 1980, a series of small earthquakes occurred in the Cascades. Other geologists, few people noticed, thought that something was happening imminently. However, on the afternoon of March 20th, 1980, a magnitude 4.2 earthquake rocked the state. Earthquake activity increased over the next few days along with continuous shaking called volcanic tremors. Geologists see this as a sign of magma moving underneath the volcano. 
Eventually, a large explosion was seen at the summit. This created a new crater, and it blew ash over a wide area. The mountain ejected steam and other material until about April 21st. Now, these are a lot of signs that we see. And then there was one more. There was a bulge that grew 450 feet into the sky above Mount St. Helens that told us that something was about to blow. And yet, there was a man that you may have never met or ever heard of, although his name may sound familiar to you. If I bring this up on the screen, am I hitting the wrong button? There he is. Harry Truman. Now, this isn't President Harry Truman. Imagine having this name and it not being the But he's famous as well. This man didn't believe it. He lived within the region of Mount St. Helens. Matter of fact, lived kind of on, his way, on the way up the mountain, and he owned a kind of a, a, a campground there. He, is, he and his wife had been there for many years, many decades. She had passed away. He had family and, and friends who were urging him to go. But a few of his family members said after the fact that this is what his statement was. I don't believe that it's actually going to happen. He thought, his niece said, that they would come and pluck him off if something really happened, that they would take him away without him taking any action, that helicopters would fly down, his nephew said, in in front of his resort and take it away. He thought the volcano, his nephew said, would just go straight up and someone would be able to get him in time, that he had more time. Well, he didn't. When Mount St. Helens blew, we know what happened. We've seen many of these pictures. The entire top of the mountain blew off. The bulge eventually did, uh, did it, the lava under that bulge eventually did escape, and it destroyed everything in its, in its uh, path. Here's what happened. The end of the mountain one, at the end, the end of the mountain one, of course, Mount St. Helens finally blew on May 18th at 8.32 a.m., a boom heard 200 miles away. Even 45 miles distant streams got, got so, or excuse me, 45 miles away, streams got so hot, nearly 100 degrees Fahrenheit, that the salmon started leaping out of the water and into the banks. Near Truman's campground, a black plume of hot ash 100 stories tall went charging down the mountain at 350 miles per hour, The intense heat twisted the 250-foot fir trees there like scraps of plastic in a campfire. The river valley that bore the brunt of the blast where he lived was buried under dozens of yards of sulfur, smelling ash, and debris. The mountain won. The warning signs were there. He refused to listen. He believed to his very dying moments that he had more time. That although the evidence was right in front of him, the visual, physical evidence was right in front of him. He didn't believe it. He thought he had more time. And I think that is exactly what we're dealing with when we approach this passage this morning that I'd like you to turn to, John chapter 12, verse 35, 36, and 37. Jesus is going to give them one more appeal. He's going to charge them one more time. And this is a very interesting passage because it marks the very last time that Jesus Christ delivers the gospel and implores people to believe. As you turn there, let me pray for our time in his word, and we'll dig into this. Heavenly Father, we love you. We praise you. We glorify your name. You are King of kings and Lord of lords. You are worthy of our praise. You are our God and the only God, and we thank you that you have given us so much time, that your patience has been overwhelming that your mercy has been beyond our understanding and your grace has saved many of us we thank you that you've warned us that your word is clear that you've given us the opportunity to believe to repent to turn to you that you have saved us we thank you for that but i do pray for those who are still thinking they have more time that time is on their side that they command it that somehow they're sovereign rather than you being sovereign i pray for their souls As we heard last week, we know it is only you who can draw them to yourself. Your word will do that, and we know that that is true, and I pray that your Holy Spirit will will move in the hearts of both the believer and the non-believer this morning to help us to understand that our time is short, and what we do with it matters. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So as we're in this passage, let's read it 
together here. I'll read it out loud. You read it to yourself. We'll cover these very few verses, and I'd actually like to start with verse 34 that I ended with last week. That helps us with some some idea of of context to get an understanding why Jesus says what he is about to say. So I'm going to start at verse 34. You're in John chapter 12 right now. So the crowd answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? How can you say that the Son of Man has to be crucified? We know what the Bible says. And then they challenge him, who is the Son of Man? Challenging whether or not he is the Messiah. Jesus' response. So Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become the sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. They still believed they had more time. Just like we see in these pictures, just as we see Harry Truman believing he had more time, that was not the case. And as we go through today, here is what we're going to look at. Jesus makes a a one last plea, one last challenge. While the light is among you, while I'm here, while you can, you need to make a decision. You need to surrender. You need to repent, and you need to believe. We're going to see that. And the idea of what it means to become What a beautiful thing to become the sons of light. And then a warning, a stark warning about unbelief. So this is what we're going to see today. Last week, as you recall, we talked about this concept of the Messiah having to fulfill his own word and his own prophecy about being lifted up. And how he would draw all men to himself. He would draw those who he would save to himself. And this would happen via his sacrifice and his resurrection and then their misunderstanding of the Messiah. And we finished with understanding for us the challenge of living, breathing, loving, and, and, and in embracing the full counsel of God as we studied last week. But let's get back to verse 35. As we saw, verse 34, they're challenging whether or not he's truly the Messiah. They have gone from loving him. I want you to keep in mind context. This is very close as far as time-wise, very close to the triumphal entry. Some of these people had praised his name, but as he challenged their theology, as he challenged their unbelief, their misunderstanding, things shifted very quickly. And what we see Jesus saying is something very poignant. Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. You don't think I'm the Messiah? Let me challenge you one more time. Walk while you have the light lest darkness overtake you. He's talking about spiritual blindness. It may overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he's going. You see, you and I, as believers and as non-believers, we all have the same problem. We walk in a dark world. A dark world that we're part of. With a dark heart that we have. With sin that has darkened this place that we have participated in. And we believe, before we're in Christ, that somehow we can fight our way out of that. That we can somehow come up with an answer for that. And as we heard in hour one, maybe find a way to find some sort of happiness or contentment on our own, with our own strength, with our own will. And what Christ is telling them and us and anyone who is willing to read and listen to this, there is only one way to see the light. And it is via the light. And what we see is John and now Jesus in the Gospel of John continually using this term. Let me show you this. John, very, very early in his Gospel, we know how it starts, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. We know the Word was with us. That's Jesus in the flesh. But notice what he does in verse 4. In him, this Word was the life, And the life was the light of men. He transitions from the word, the living word, into the light. I think that's an an impressive thing that we're going to see because we, we also see this with David. He'll do the same thing. He'll connect word and light here in just a moment. 
Just a little further down in John chapter 1, we see this, the true light. And, and, and this, is, this is an important thing to, to understand it in this very short verse. The true light. There are a lot of fake ones. There, there are a lot of um, those who are maybe masquerading as the way or the light or a path or direction. There are a lot of counterfeits to the light. But the true light, the true light which gives light, it's, it's what the light is and it emanates it and continues, by the way, as we'll see going forward, to guide you to everyone was coming into the world. This was a moment in time, an incredible, epic moment in time where the God of the universe took on flesh and was amongst us. And the Word of God, as we see it, culminates because He did this. The Old Testament is pointing to the new. The Old Testament is pointing to the Messiah, to the light. And if He hadn't come and He hadn't lived and He hadn't done what He had said He would do and then accomplished None of this would make any sense. The Old Testament would be incomplete. The Bible itself would not be complete. That full counsel of God that we talked about last week, it wouldn't mean anything because he wouldn't be what he said he is. The light was in the world. What an incredible thing. And there were those who were there to see that. An incredible thing. Well, John says that, but Jesus also picks up on it. Look at what Jesus says about himself. Chapter 8, further along, and John, I'm just walking you through it. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. He then attaches it to eternal life. Jesus calling himself the light, this is an important element. John references it, but he's quoting his Savior. He heard Jesus say it. That's why he picks up on it. I mentioned to you that David references it. Psalm 119, 105, you know this. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. What do we see the psalmist doing? Connecting the word to the light. The word to the light. Now, we understand this so often as the word of God being the guide, and it's the light. And that's true. That's true. Jesus being the living word is is not taking away from the physical word being in front of you. It's inspired by him. It's about him. He wrote it. He lived it. He fulfilled it, and he will continue to do so. And he helps you to understand it through his Holy Spirit. Remember, they are one. So to have these things interfacing is good, and it's right. But he connects these two things. John 12, 46, further along in chapter 12, we'll get to this in two weeks. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. So you're noticing something here. What is Jesus doing? He's contrasting light and darkness, isn't he? He's trying to get you and I to understand, right now you're in darkness, Right now you can't see. Right now what you're doing is wandering around, stumbling and bumbling, hoping to find this on your own, and you can't do it. I've got your answer. I'm your answer. I'm right in front of you. This was predicted. I want you to notice what Isaiah says about the suffering servant. Isaiah chapter 9, we know this so. So usually we think about this as this is the sun that is given, and this is around Christmas time. The government will be on his shoulders. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. This is predicted. This is what he did Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. Jesus is living this out. You don't think it's an accident that he uses these types of phrases, do you? He wrote this. He inspired Isaiah to write this. Isaiah, as we'll see next week, he saw the glory of God. He saw the glory of Christ and wrote about it. You don't think this is an accident that Jesus speaks of this. And of course, the Apostle Paul, speaking of the Lord's return, And judgment that is coming, he says, but you, believer, you're not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. You know what God has told you. You know about the warning signs. You know that the clock is ticking, believer. You understand this. You get this. You're you're comfortable with this. And as we go forward, we see darkness. John, in his his epistle, 1 John, he uses it as a test. I'm going to give you two passages for this. He uses this as a test. Jesus references light and darkness, and John picks up on this. So if we look at this, you're in 1 John 1. This is, I got six focused on, but it's five through seven. Here's what it says. This is the message we have heard from him. Who's him? Jesus. And I proclaim it to you, John is saying, this is many decades later, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. Once again, we have the reaffirming that Jesus is the light. He's bearing light, he's producing light, and 
I tell you, it's so cool if we look forward and, and we will go through Revelation as we get into the eternal state and we get into this moment where there's a new heaven and a new earth. You realize there's no reason for a sun. Have you read that before? I don't want to get ahead of ourselves. I could spend an hour talking about this. He's the light. He, he's going to be amongst us and there's no need for created things. The uncreated thing will light everything around us. Can't imagine what that's going to be like. You'll experience that, believer, if you're there. That God is light, and in him there's no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Walking in darkness, what John is referencing here contextually, is walking in the way of the world. You heard it this in, in hour number one, walking in the flesh. Making that decision every day to serve self rather than to serve God. Heard that in hour number one. That's what he's referencing here. If that's you, if, if that's you continually, you claim to be a Christian, but you're just walking like you always did, you may not be passing the test for yourself, not earning salvation, keep in mind, but maybe you never had it. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, you and I as believers, you and I with him, and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. It's a test. John continues this test in chapter 2. If we look at this, and I've got chapter 2, verse 11 as the focus, but notice 9 and 10. If we look at this, whoever says he is in light and hates his brother, he's still in darkness. So this is a specific type of walking in the flesh, hatred of your brother. Such a key here. We look at, John does such a great job for us to see, are you truly in the faith? He gives us some litmus tests on this, and what does this look like? Here's a couple of them, but do you hate your brother or do you love him? He calls that darkness Whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. I chose this because we're going to see this come into play here in a moment. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and doesn't know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Similar to what Jesus is talking about with salvation, but he's saying if, if you think you're in Christ and you hate the fellow brothers and sisters around you, you don't care about them, you don't consider them, it's a sign that you don't know him. You're still in that same darkness that you've always been in, that you've always seen. And then Jesus makes this statement in verse 35. Walk while you have the light. Walk with me. Walk to me. Walk through me. Let me walk. Help you make this walk while you have the light, lest this darkness, this spiritual darkness, overtake you. Came across the a great quote, very early quote. This is 160 years old. My daughter typed this up for me, Jolie, who's actually helping in the, in, uh, with the little ones right now. So I was going to give her props and actually was going to say if there's any typos, it's her fault. But she's not in here. But, <laughs> but here's what it says, and I think it's so poignant. And uh, I also think it's kind of neat that he was a, a bishop uh, of Carlisle. And so when he goes to visit a castle... It's a little different than when we do. I think it's, it's a long time ago. Here's what, it, here's what happened in his experience living over there. I once happened to be on a visit of a great castle situated on the top of a hill. There was a steep cliff at the bottom of which there was a rapid river. Late one night, there was a person anxious to get home from that castle in the midst of a thunderstorm. The night was blackness itself. The woman asked to stop till the storm was over, but she declined. Next, they begged her to take a lantern that she might be able to, to keep upon the road and, from the castle to her home. She said she did not require a lantern, but could do very well without one, for she knew the way herself. Hmm. She went. Perhaps she was frightened by the storm. I know not the cause. But in the midst of the darkness, she wandered from the path and fell over the cliff. The next day, that the swollen river washed to the shore the poor, lifeless body of this foolish woman, so goes the soul who rejects the light that illuminates the eternal way. Mm -hmm. Poignant. Yeah, so goes the soul. True story, but boy, does that really resonate with the eternal soul. We think we know the way. We think we know the way because of some man-made philosophy, maybe from our own experience, maybe from our own man-made tradition, maybe from something we've read or watched or done, or our own accomplishments or our own will. I don't know why you think you know the way on your own, but you don't. Familiarity with the world around you doesn't give you familiarity with the world to come. What it does 
if you can't see that you're in darkness, what it does is it, it damns you to eternal darkness. If you can't see that you're in darkness. And that's what Jesus is trying to say here. And it's a warning of time. And I want you to notice something. This is from Old Testament to New Testament. These are tough passages, I'll warn you. Here's what we see from Isaiah. Isaiah, who speaks of the Messiah maybe more than any other prophet, who said he saw the glory of Christ, as we'll see next week. He says this, and this is a warning through the ages, through time and space. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Hmm. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Many say, many theologians say that this is one of the most clear understandings of repentance in the Old Testament. That a clear understanding of the true gospel in the Old Testament. Of course, Isaiah speaking of the suffering servant. But he says two things here that are important. While he may be found and while he is near. You understand what that indicates. He cannot always be found and he is not always near. There is a misunderstanding, and this plays a little bit into what we heard yesterday from Vodi Bakum, a misunderstanding of who the Messiah really is, who God really is, the sort of God you're really dealing with. You believe that he is a God of your creation or a God that, that works off of your whims, as if he is some sort of a genie that will fulfill your wishes at your beck and call. And that is not the God we are dealing with. Our God is a consuming fire. Our God is strong. Our God is a God of judgment and wrath. And we should know that based on what we've already studied in in the gospel of John and what Jesus explained to us about what troubled his heart when he faced the cross. We should know what sort of God we're dealing with. And our God says, while I'm near and while I may be found. That's a scary thought. That runs in the face of what many people will hear from pulpits today, that God will give you as many chances as you want, that you have all the time in the world because he's merciful and gracious. I won't argue with that he is merciful and gracious, no doubt about it. He's so merciful and gracious that I should be dead already. I should be dead already. I should have never been saved. I should have never had the opportunity to hear the gospel. I have nothing about me that makes me in any way deserving of what he's already done. That's how merciful and gracious my God is. I did everything in my power to defy him and still do at times as a believer, and yet he still saved my sorry soul. Yes, I have a gracious and merciful God, but if you believe salvation belongs to you and your timeline, You don't understand the God that is in this Bible and that is the reality of the world that we will will someday live in. His world, his eternity, and and, and his word is giving us these warning signs. Turn to Proverbs chapter 1. I want you to see this with your eyes. Proverbs chapter 1. My fellow elders can see why now I said I've got to have three more weeks for this because I need it. Proverbs chapter 1. These are passages that are not often preached. I'll I'll be honest with you. You know me, I don't mind. But there are some who mind. Because this isn't going to make you feel good if you're not in Christ. I can tell you that. And it may not make you feel good if you are because you think, I don't think that's what God's like. God tells us what he's like. It's not up to you to decide this. It's up to his word to decide this. And this is a warning to all who would reject him, and I think it's so poignant. We've been studying Solomon's folly for weeks now in Ecclesiastes. Solomon looking back on his life of vanity. Solomon looking back on all the things he tried and how he even rejected the Almighty God in spite of the fact that God spoke to him directly twice. And what we see here is Solomon to his son saying, Listen to me, son. If you reject God... This is what it looks like. We're going to pick this up in verse 23. Speaking of those who reject the gospel is the way we can look at this. If you turn at my reproof, God, speaking through Solomon, behold, I will pour out my spirit to you 
If you turn at my reproof, repenting, keep in mind, I will pour out my spirit to you. I will make my words known to you. I'm going to have fellowship with you, and the word of God's going to make sense, and I'm going to guide your path. Because I've called you and you refuse to listen, however, I've stretched out my hand and no, and no one has heeded. Because you have ignored all my counsel and would have none of my reproof, I also will laugh at your calamity. This is God speaking. I will mock when terror strikes you. When terror strikes you like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you, then you'll call upon me, but I'll not answer. They will seek me diligently, but will not find me. This is important. Because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord, would have none of my counsel and despised all my reproof, therefore they shall eat the fruit of their way and have their fill of their own devices." For the simple are killed by their turning away, and the complacency of fools destroys them. But whoever listens to me will dwell secure and will be at ease without dread of disaster. Whoo! The God of the universe just warned you about that. You don't have all the time in the world. If you hear his reproof, if you hear his correction, if you hear his warning, if you believe that the time is short, that the clock is ticking, It's no time to play with God. I want you to understand some things, some highlights from this. This is what marks the unbeliever. Those who have a heart that is like stone, that won't listen. They hate knowledge. They hate the truth. They don't fear the Lord. They despise reproof. This is what God said. They turn away from him. I want you to think about that physically. They hear it, and they see it, but they turn away so they just can't see it anymore. They, They blind themselves intentionally. It's a physical act to not see it anymore, and their life is marked by complacency. That's what we see here. And it's a warning that if you continue to do this, I'll laugh at you. I'll mock you. There is no salvation for you. So the Apostle Paul makes reference to this, and he, he wants us to understand this. Coming off of Romans chapter 1, which I think you know well, this warning about what will happen to those who don't acknowledge the Creator God. We see over and over God giving them over to. Giving them over to a debased mind to do things they ought not do. God pushing them down this direction. And then it's a warning to those who call themselves Christians coming up here in chapter 2. Oh, you judge the world for that. Be careful. Make sure you're in Christ. Look at what Paul says. Romans chapter 2, picking it up, verse 35. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, maybe in your heart, maybe you don't physically do them but in your mind you're justifying them maybe maybe that 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 idea of keeping every thought captive isn't true for you you judge everybody else but in your heart you're the same that you will escape the judgment of god or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience not knowing that god's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance just what solomon said isn't it if only you had turned at my reproof then I would have illuminated my word and it would have made sense and your, your path would have been lightened. But because of your hard and impotent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Now you're thinking, ah, that's just Paul referencing something that's in the Old Testament. Isaiah speaks of it and, and of course Solomon speaks of it. This couldn't possibly happen to the believer. This couldn't happen to us in the modern age. How about I take you to the future? Turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Let me take you to the future. You think you got all the time in the world and salvation belongs to you? You think that you get to decide when you will become a believer? You think it's up to you? You think that you can live the life, maybe, of the criminal on the cross? You say, well, you know, he got saved right at the end. I I agree with you, he did. It was awful close, though, wasn't it? It's awful close. That's all I'll say about that. It was awful close. You may think, I have all the time in the world, and there are going to be people, and we're going to see this today, who believe this when the clock's really ticking. And it's on hyperspeed. And the time of men's opportunity to repent and believe is growing very short. Contextually, what we're dealing with here is the church in Thessalonica thought they had already started They were already in. Someone had given them a false letter they thought was from Paul, a message that they were already in the tribulation, that the day of the Lord had begun. 
And they were concerned and petrified because, you know, they believed they were going to be gone based on what Paul had already taught them in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and certainly what he had said. And he begins to tell them about, wait a minute, wait a minute, remember what I told you. And he starts to unpack for them, and we will look at this in detail in the upcoming months, what the Antichrist will do and what he will look like and what sort of power he will have. I don't really want to talk about that today. I do want to talk about this, though. The power he will have and what Satan still has over deceiving mankind into thinking they don't need Jesus and they don't need the truth. And the fear of the Lord is an antiquated, old-time, old-school idea that is not for them anymore. I want you to pick this up, picking it up at verse 9. Speaking of what this Antichrist will do, the biggest problem, the biggest power he will have is deception, but it goes beyond that. This may shock you. The coming of the lawless one, this Antichrist, is, is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing. I want you to notice why they're perishing. Paul gives us the idea here, because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Sounds like Solomon, and sounds like what Jesus is saying. The light is amongst you. You're, he, I'm right here with you. I, I've been showing you, even, even though I've done all these things. I've preached and taught and displayed. You've had the entire Old Testament to look at and study. And they rejected it because they didn't love the truth and so be so, saved. Now this is scary. Therefore God sends them a strong delusion. Let me read that again. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false. You think you got all the time in the world? What if God says your time's up today, sinner? You've heard the gospel 1,000 times, and he said, that's enough. You say, that's not true. No, it is true. While he is near and while he may be found. I'll give you some good news. You are breathing. There's a few of you nodding off. But you're breathing, and you're, you're hearing the gospel. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. By grace, through faith, in Christ alone, because of his finished work on the cross alone, if you believe in that, you will be saved. you got another shot. But I don't know if you do tomorrow. And I don't know how long that clock is ticking for you. I'm not talking about the end of the world. I'm talking about the end of your world. See, I don't know. You think, man, every week you are blistering us with the gospel. Yeah, that's going to happen for the next three weeks too. Because I just don't know. I just don't know. And I want to make sure that you know, because the clock is ticking, God sends them a strong delusion so they may believe what is false, in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but they had pleasure in unrighteousness. I can't help but to connect this to what we heard in hour number one. Now, I knew what was going to be taught, of course, I, I can read, but it's God's Word that just works in and through itself to help us understand with a more complete understanding, with the full counsel of God. We know the results of living for pleasure, living for self, and living for, for our own kingdom, and it ends in death and darkness. You think you got the time, all the time in the world? Paul says no. Isaiah says no. Here's what it says, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, 1 and 2, working together with him, then we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time, this is Isaiah 49, keep coming back to Isaiah. Isaiah knew what he was talking about. I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Today, right here, right now. I know you've heard that before. But I want you to notice how often he says it just within two verses. In a favorable time, time matters. In a favorable day, salvation comes. Now is the day of salvation. Do you see? Time is not yours. It's not. You don't command it. You're not the king of it, and nor am I. It is in God's hands. He is sovereign. That's what Jesus is about to do here. And I, I, I lay all of this down because Jesus is laying all of this down for three years. For three years, some of these same people who are now in his face challenging his Messiahship have watched him for three years. And they've seen it over and over again. You may have sat in, in, in pews and in chairs in churches for years and years, and you've heard it, and you've seen it, and you've seen lives changed, 
and you've seen the truth of God's word, and you've heard the promises, but you're still challenging him. And he's saying, today is your day. And so for one last time, I don't think people oftentimes realize this. As you go back to John chapter 12, we're not going to see Jesus do this again. He has done it over and over and over for three years from the jump. He has challenged men to repent and believe on him. This is the last time. As we go into the Passion Week, he says a lot of things, but he never, again, challenges them to believe. A time has come and it's gone. Here's what it says in John chapter 12, verse 36. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. Believe in the light. Now I want you to notice, I just told you that he's been saying this for three years. Let me prove it to you. If you think, well, Jesus isn't going to tell them anymore, he's told them plenty. Look at Mark chapter 1, verses 14 through 16, right at the beginning of his ministry. After John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, and what was John proclaiming? Repent and believe the kingdom of God is at hand, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time, notice again, time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Hmm. The time is at hand. John says it, Jesus says it. I want you to walk through John 6 with me. Turn to John 6. Let me show you this. In our own study of John, we've seen this. You think Jesus isn't merciful and he's not gracious. How could he not give me all the time that I need? He has given you all the time that you need, just not as much time as you want. There's a difference. John chapter 6, just a quick walk through John. After Jesus feeds the 5,000, he begins to give, them, to give us some straight, strong gospel and doctrine Picking this up, I'm just going to jump through this. He establishes himself as the bread of life, that we need to feast on him, consume him. He should be all that we need to sustain our eternal life, eternal breath. Verse 28, then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. What do we got to do? Believe in me. Believe in me. Skip up to verse 35. Again, answering their question, give us this bread always, they say in verse 34. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Believe in me, believe in me. They keep asking the same question. And he keeps giving them the same answer. Believe in me, believe in me. Skip to verse 40. Let's walk through this. Verse 40, he says this, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Again, we see in just these few verses, believe, believe, believe. One more time, verse 47. We see this again. It says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. Has Jesus given them a chance? This is over and over and over and over again. Believe on him. Now, you believers are saying, I got it. I, I'm saved. I got it. I believe that's true. Some of you are thinking that. So now, if that's true, if you are truly a son of light, if you go back to this, you've become the sons of light, well, what does that mean? How about you, believer? Go to Ephesians chapter 5. I thought pastor was going to steal my thunder this morning. He went to Ephesians 5 and faked us out once. And then went to Ephesians 5 for real the second time, but he went a little further, so I was happy about that. So we can connect the dots here. Go to Ephesians 5. We're going to pick this up at verse, at verse 7. Ephesians 5, verse 7. All right, you believer. It says, you've been preaching to the non-believer all morning. How about, how about me? Give me something. Well, the Lord's going to give you something right now. Ephesians 5, verse 7. Here's the call to the believer. We're living amongst those who are, who are not in the light who are in darkness, and because they're in darkness, they're walking in it, and they're walking in the flesh. And we're called to be different. And in the midst of this, Paul lays down the gauntlet for us, and he says this, verse 7, Therefore, you don't become partners with them. With who? The people who are in darkness. But now, it, he says this, you don't become partners with them. You don't ally with them. You don't do what they're doing. For at one time, you were in darkness. You were like that. But now you are light in the lord walk as children of light you're light in the lord you're sons of light you've inherited this now 
you're divine, you, you, you have this, you're, this, this, this idea of being uh, born from above, as Peter would say. Divine partakers in this incredible unity with Christ that you now have the Holy Spirit. You walk in light. You're the example of Christ to the world. And Paul is saying, you've got to be careful how you walk then. You walk as children of light. The fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right and true. That is the fruit of the Spirit. That's going to come out in your life. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. We'll get, come back around to that next week. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead you expose them. Now that doesn't mean you're, you're uh, Mr. or Mrs. heresy checker everywhere you go. I have a tendency to be like that sometimes. Uh, I can see that some of us might think that that's our job. No, we do this with gentleness and respect, but we do it. If, if the world isn't going to get the truth from us, where are they going to get it from? You're his ambassador. He's making his appeal through you. And the Apostle Paul is saying, you got to call it out. You do it with love and you do it with respect and you do it with a humble attitude knowing that you too once were in darkness. Don't forget about what Paul said. That's once where you were, verse 7. But you call it out. You call it out so that you can show them the way and you can show them the light. People love to embrace and hang on to what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. Judge not, lest ye to be judged. And then we continue to go on. And I, I think it's interesting. They don't really dig deep into that because they say, oh, I got to take the log out of my eye. I got to do that. Yeah, but Jesus told you to do that so that you could take the speck out of your neighbor's eye. It's so that you can see that you're walking in the word and he's illuminating your path so that you can see your own error. You can clean up your own life. You can walk in and then you can help others to do the same. You're, you're not called to live in isolation. You're called to live as one who is holy, living in a life that is exemplary so that you can lead others to Christ, so they can glorify his name. That's what we should be seeing. That's what we should always be, be seeing. Notice it says, verse 12, for it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret, but when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. Anything that becomes visible is light, verse 14. Therefore it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Just love the continual use of light in these passages. Look carefully then on how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. And then, boy, God's so smart. Look at this. Making the best use of what? The time. <laughs> it's almost as if the same guy wrote, wrote all this in your Bible. He did. The God of the universe wrote this down. Make the best use of the time because the days are evil. Hmm. One last appeal he gives to the people, but he's given it to you too. You believer, make the best use of your time because the days are evil. And then we see something happening here in the end of chapter, verse, uh, chapter 12, verse 36. He gives them this one last cry. Repent and believe. Put your faith in me. Become sons of light. I'm right here while I'm here, while you can see it. And I'll just give you a slight preview of next week. The reason for this is because what was prophesied by Isaiah as well is that there would be a partial hardening of the hearts of the Israelites next week. So much like what we've already read in Proverbs 1. So much of like what we've read in 2 Thessalonians 2. This would happen to them. And he knew it because he wrote it. And he realized that this would happen. And I, once again, I want you to see the heart of our Savior. Look at what it says in verse 36b. The second part of 36. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Now you think, well, that doesn't tell us a lot. So he, he went away. He hid himself from them. Well, we've seen him do this before. And we've seen Christ get away before. And there's lessons to be learned from this. As a matter of fact, there's two other times that we've studied together where I've brought this up, and Pastor has as well, where Christ has done this. And I want to show you this. John 8, verses 58 through 59, we see this. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am calling himself God incarnate. They wanted to kill him, so they picked up stones to throw at him. Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. He hid himself to get away from those who wanted to push their own agenda of how to kill him, and he knew the hour had not yet come, as we've discussed. So there's one reason why he does this, for his sovereign timeline, his will to accomplish that. And this is after this long discussion of who he really was, they wanted to kill him for it, and he said, yeah, I know you do. That's coming later, and it's coming in my way. So his sovereign will 
is what makes him get away. But we've seen this in other places too. You might remember after the death of John the Baptist, we see the heart of Christ here. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place when he heard about the death of John the Baptist. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. Now here's another reason why Christ gets away. Because he feels some emotion like we do too. Because he loved John the Baptist. Because he understands the consequences of sin. He understands the rejection of the message that was preached by John the Baptist. He he realizes that, and he gets away. And we're going to talk about what he gets away for. We saw the same thing after the feeding of the 5,000. You think, well, this was a miraculous event. True, but he also knows the hearts of men. And what were they impressed with? Food. They were impressed with the miracle, the dazzling event that took place. What they didn't see and what Jesus knew they didn't see is their real problem was their sin. And that the Savior was right there offering them salvation, and they didn't see it. So what do we see? And after he dismissed the crowds, he went on a mountain by himself, and this is the key. This is what I think we can say happens every time he gets himself away. What does it say he does? He prays. When he even came, he was there alone. And we see John saying the same thing in John six fifteen. but he adds something. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king right after the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So we know he's going to pray, and these are not the only events in which this happens. Jesus gets away, and he's praying to the Father. Now, I say there's a lesson here. This is Christ's example of prayer. He does this himself. The God of the universe, who took on human flesh, still finds it important to pray to the Father, to have communion with the Father. And I think this is a, boy... It's challenging to me, so I'm assuming it's, it's challenging to you. Do you find yourself making an excuse like this? I'd pray more if I had more time. I know it's important, but I think I've got it. I think I've got this. When Jesus Christ felt it was important to get away from everybody else and have communion with the Father, he was God, and he felt it important to do. And we don't even know what all these conversations sounded like. So you could make the excuse, well, he's just teaching us. I agree, he was. You don't even know what he was saying in all of these conversations. But he had to do it. He needed to do it. It was important because he understood that that fellowship with the Father was the key to it all. And he wanted to accomplish the Father's will in his humanness. However, we can understand that. And I think it'll take eternity for us to understand that. Certainly is showing us the way, but it was a need for him to be in communion with the Father. So we got a way to do this. And I want you to notice this. This is pretty early on. And rising early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. This is so convicting. He rose early in the morning while it was still dark. I don't have time. There's not enough hours in the day. I've made those statements myself. Then get up earlier. You can sleep when you're dead. Commune with the Father. And how does he tell us to do this? Notice this. In Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 8. When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogue and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. That's the glory of man versus the glory of God. We'll talk about that next week. Truly I say to you, they are receive their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who's in secret. It's between you and the Lord. Between you and the Lord. I can confess to you, I don't do this enough, and I don't do this long enough, and I don't depend on it as I should, and because of that, I'm certain that I'm not walking as I should, and I bet you could say the same. I bet you could say the same. When you pray, don't heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, non-believers was what he means here, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Don't be like them. Your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. He knows you, and He knows you well. And he's telling you, Christ's example, I want you to pray. Learn to be still. What do we see from the psalmist? Psalm 37, 7. Be still before the Lord. Wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Chapter 46, or verse 9 as well. He makes war cease in the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still. And know that he is Lord. He is in control. Some of you are going through it. Some of you are going through difficulty and struggle and pain and suffering. I know that. 
Are you spending time with the Lord? Be still before the Lord. He knows, and He knows you better than you know yourself. As we go forward in this passage, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Be still and know that He is God. And you think this, and we think of these passages, and we think things like this, and we understand that this is true, but is it true in practice for us? And then there's a, another reason, maybe a fourth reason that I think Jesus gets away, and I think it gives us the heart of Christ. And this is interesting. I don't know if you've ever noticed this before, but in Luke chapter 19, 41 through 44, when Jesus is weeping over Jerusalem, it is right around the time of the triumphal entry. Why do I say that? Well, when Jesus gets away from from the crowds in John chapter 12, we don't know where he goes. There are some who speculate that this is maybe what he says and maybe what he does. In the midst of his prayer, we know it's around the same time, there's this little kind of snippet that takes us out of the narrative in Luke chapter 19 where Christ weeps over Jerusalem. And look at his heart. Look at his heart for his people. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. Now, Again, some people think this is at the triumphal entry, some after it. It's the timeline is interesting as you look at the commentaries on this. But anyway, he says this, Would that you would even you had known on this day the things that make, that make for peace. But now they're hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you, speaking of the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, and around you and surround you and hem you in on every side, and tear you down to the ground, and your children within you, and you will not leave one stone upon another in you, because you did not know, look at this, the time, the time of your visitation. The heart of Christ here. He had a heart for the lost. His own people, as we understand John 12, he's speaking to mostly Jews. There were some Greeks there, as we know. There were some Gentiles. But continually for three years, speaking to his own people, and they received him not. You think, well, by this time he's got to be mad at them. By this time he's got to hate them. By this time he's just got to... No, their time's up. But look at his heart. Oh, if you had just turned. If you would have just, if you would have just believed. If you had just... Peace was right here for you. The light was right here for you. Because you didn't know the time of your visitation. It's over. Here's what MacArthur says about this in the companion passages of Matthew 23. God is utterly sovereign, and I'll bring this up for you, and therefore fully capable of bringing to pass whatever he desires, including the salvation of whomever he chooses. Yet, he sometimes expresses a wish for that which he does not sovereignly bring to pass. It's tough to understand this, isn't it? Such expression is in no way suggesting a limitation on the sovereignty of God or implying any actual change in him. But these statements do reveal essential aspects of the divine character of Christ. He is full of compassion, sincerely good to all, desirous of good, not evil, and therefore not delighting in the destruction of the wicked. While affirming God's sovereignty, one must understand his pleas for the repentance and the reprobate as well-meant appeals. He means it. And his goodness towards the wicked as a genuine mercy designed to provoke them to repentance. Our God is good, and he is loving, and he is kind, and he cares for you. And if that weren't so, he wouldn't have given you the word and he wouldn't have crushed his son for you. And you wouldn't find yourself in that seat today hearing how good he is. And hearing the gospel one more time. That's how good he is. The heart of our Savior. What did he do when he went alone? I think he prayed for you. As we think of John chapter 17 and through time and space, he considers those who hear the message of the apostles and he prayed for you then. I think that's not the only time he prayed for you. I think he had you in mind. Do you think your salvation, believer, was an accident? It was not. Before the foundations of the world, he knew you. He understood who he would save. He believed this then when he prayed this for Israel, and I, I believe he, he says this for you too. God's kindness and forbearance. Beautiful, amazing. But then we're, here's what we see. This stubborn unbelief. Let's end with this, verse 37. Verse 37, it's tough. Though he had done so many signs before them, I'll bring it up, they still did not believe in him. Mm. 
Now, you may want to say that this is just those Jews that were there, just those Greeks that were there, just those people who had the light. But I challenge you at the beginning, that's not the case. I think there's an argument that can be made is that you have more evidence. As a matter of fact, the Apostle Peter would say the written word or the prophetic word is even more evidence of who Christ is, the fulfillment of that, the complete New Testament that they did not have and you do, the explanation of what Christ did and said through the epistles, the fulfillment of all of these things, and then the looking forward, you have it all. And you probably have four copies at home. So when we think of this, it's not just those. That stubbornness is the heart of man, all men, throughout all eternity. Look what Paul says here in 1 Corinthians 1. For the Jews demand signs, Greeks wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. This is a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to Gentiles. We heard this from Peter earlier. I told you it would come up. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, notice he uses Greeks here, I think it's interesting, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. If you're in Christ, you understand this. You get this. But what is it, what's holding people back? Well, for some, it's a stumbling block. The Jews, they don't think it's the fulfillment. They only see the passages they want. It's, it's not the Messiah they're hoping for. For others, it's just stupid. They think what you believe is dumb and it's a crutch. And how can you believe in a fairy tale like Jesus Christ? That might be the problem. Maybe that's the stubbornness of heart. There is another option that we heard in hour number one, and Pastor references this. The world itself is a huge draw. Why the stubbornness? Well, John tells us what the problem is for most. They love the world. And he tells us this, don't love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. It's one or the other. Two things on the shelf, as we heard. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desire of the eyes and the pride of life, it's not from the Father, but it's from the world. We could say it this way, it's of darkness, not of light. And the world is passing away along with all its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. You see, the struggle may not be, well, it's a stumbling block because I know the Word of God so well and it just doesn't add up for me. Oh, it's just dumb and it's stupid because you're believing in a fairy tale. No, it could be, I see it all, but I just love this place and I love my sin. And I love my pleasure, and I love my pride, and I love what I see, and I I can't give it up. And I love me. And that could be why that stubbornness is there. It could be that. John 3.19 says, Jesus said, after the very famous passage of John 3.17 and 18, 16, 17, and 18 that we've studied already, he says this, they love the darkness because their deeds are evil. Covers them up. Because they love them. They love the darkness. You see, it'd be neat to say that everybody who's in darkness hates to be there, but that's not the case. They love to be there. They love to be there because they aren't seeing the warning signs. So what do we do with this? What do we do with this, Christian? Hebrews chapter 3 tells us what to do with this. Hebrews 3 says this, Believer, take care, brothers, lest there be any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. There are some amongst us who claim to be in Christ, but maybe aren't. But here's what you do, believer. You exhort one another every day. Boy, look at this again. As long as it is called today. Time is again of the essence, isn't it? That none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold to our original confidence firm to the end. If there's endurance, that's a proof of being in Christ. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Believer, you're called to encourage and exhort one another to not go back down those paths and start going back to those bad habits and start living in darkness just like we heard in Ephesians 5 earlier. We have nothing, we don't take part in that anymore. We're not partners with them. Encourage one another with those things. Remember, Ephesians 5, look carefully at how you walk. Not as the unwise, but as wise. And here's where I want to end. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 2, and I promise I'm ending right here we got to connect these dots. 1 Peter chapter 2, 6-9. through Because this is such good news. Light and darkness. Jesus giving you a new heart. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 6-9 through has some great news. And you'll notice my title here. What an honor for those who believe. I pray that you're in Christ today. And if that's the case, here's what it says. 
connecting all of these dots, Peter says this, For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. It's an honor that you were saved. You didn't do it. Christ did it. What an honor that you see that, that you repented and you, you believed. Because the cornerstone is there for you. It says this, for those who do not believe. So the honor is for those who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and the stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they are destined to do. But you, good news, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of what? Look at this. Out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's you, believer. It's an honor. What he did for you, you didn't deserve. But what he did for you should motivate you to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness, drew you, drug you against your own will, and brought you into his marvelous light to serve this God who lives in unapproachable light. As you, believer, and I pray you live that way. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for this example that your son gave us. His last plea to the fallen world. And a last plea to maybe somebody here, I pray for salvation for someone who's still holding on to that heart of their own. Not repenting, not yielding. I pray that you break them, that you draw them. And for those of us who believe that we understand what an honor it is that you drew us from darkness into light and that we get to proclaim your excellencies. And you are excellent and we praise your name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.